Welcome to the Amputeer Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is my veteran drama teacher, actor and playwright, film festival board member, DJ, and uh, bi-weekly CJSR radio host, Christian Zip. Did I pronounce that, that right? Correct. Yes, awesome. Zip. Zip. It's, uh, it's like an I, but it's a Y. Yeah. Awesome. Christian got seriously ill back in 2016 that resulted in the loss of both his legs below the knees. But despite all that, he is back doing what he loves, teaching drama, sharing his passion for theater and movies as the voice of the moving radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and the voice for inclusivity in the entertainment industry. Welcome to the show, Christian. Hello. How's it going? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for, for being here. You know, it, it's quite interesting to to have you on uh, doing this interview because I think we have some some similarities in our stories. But uh, well, before yeah. we get to that, can you maybe perhaps share with our listeners a little bit about what happened in 2016? Sure, sure. No problem at all. Um, so what had happened is that, you know, life is going OK. Uh, it is classically a busy time of the year for me around end of February, beginning of March, just because. Uh, in the cycle of a school year, for myself at least, uh, traditionally that is when I would mount the yearly production, which is not like a huge deal. It's just kind of like, that's what you kind of build to as like a big event for the, of the year. We do all kinds of stuff. So that's, it's kind of a really crazy busy time. So, you know, I was the kind of person that never really like took days off because I was very fortunate that I would never really get sick or at least not to the level that I felt like it kind of took me out. Um, so, you know, like I was kind of like a, a really like continually busy kind of person, you know, doing the teaching, uh, working on film boards voluntarily throughout the city, uh, doing the radio show, you know, and a bunch of other stuff, doing other side things on my own. So, I mean, I kind of saw myself as one of those people that likes to say continually busy. Um, so when it came down to that weekend at the end of February, it just, it's, I started to feel a little off, like a really intense kind of flu, um, let's say on the Saturday evening um, at the end of February, this would be in a leap year. So it was like 28th, 29th. And then by the time the 29th is happening, Sunday, February 29th in 2016, I start feeling really off as in like, just really tired. Um, I'm, you know, I'm getting sick a lot. I uh, couldn't keep anything down and just kind of, you know, feeling off to a level that I hadn't really felt before, you know. And so as that the day kind of progressed, I just it wasn't getting any better at all. Like I didn't have any appetite. Uh, I'm sitting there watching the Oscars like I do every year with my wife because uh, I am a, a moderately obsessed with film. So I'm like, that's kind of like the Super Bowl for us as a couple. You know what I mean? She doesn't care about sports. Uh, I love cinema and sports. So that's kind of like a big deal. So for me to feel off on that kind of night uh, was an odd thing. And it started getting to the point where I usually what would happen is that I also like had a little side thing on Sundays where I would go and DJ at a local bar on White Avenue here in Edmonton. So the first thing I said is I'm like, well, I cannot go tonight. Like, I feel so off. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to get through, you know, four hours of press and play without going to the washroom like eight times, which is not good for anybody. And so that was my first kind of step. And then I tried to like relax and I'm like, well, maybe I should just like try to get some sleep and sleep this off. But I mean, the thing that was unrelenting was that I was like, my breath was getting short. Uh, my heart rate was off the charts. I couldn't, I couldn't relax. It kind of felt like I was, um, like I was hyperventilating almost, right? So um, I just couldn't shake it. And uh, after feeling like that for a long time and trying a bunch of different things, you know, like I'm trying to breathe into a paper bag, like I did when I was a kid when I got socked in the stomach when I was playing football, that didn't work. And then eventually it got to kind of a point where I was like you know what, like this, this feels really weird. Like I've never felt this intense physically off in my life. So uh, I told my wife, I'm like, let's just go to the emergency room. Cause it's about, I think 1am, 2am. Uh, sometimes my times are a little sketchy on that. Cause it's a little 
blurry for me, but it's clear for my wife. So we go to the emergency room, which is already kind of like for her, she's like, this is really strange. So I go in there with what seemed to be like flu-like symptoms. Um, they admit me pretty quickly because there's not many people in there. And also like, I must look way off. Um, essentially after that, they kind of put me into a room. Uh, the first big sign that I was in trouble was that they, you know, um, they they got the lights off and they start talking about intubating me. I was like, okay, like that's really intense, but I'm like, whatever helps. I mean, I thought you would hook me up to an IV and be like, okay, like, you know, get your fluids back. Cause, cause you know, you've lost a lot during the day and you feel completely weak. And that's maybe why your body's reacting like this. Um, and to be honest with you though, that's pretty much the last thing I remember for about six weeks, I guess, is, is being kind of intubated in the emergency room at the University of Alberta Hospital uh, in Edmonton here. And so it's after that point that, you know, I'm kind of given bits and pieces of the story to kind of put it together. Uh, you know, my wife talks about how she's, you know, outside of the, um, of my room and she kind of sees me on a cart and I'm like turning purple. And there's a bunch of people around me and they approach her and they they talk to her about like what could be going on because at this point they don't know um so it gets really serious to the next level where it's like you should call family and it's like oh my and that's when like for her she said it really like became incredibly intense because you're like are you kidding me like you know just <sighs> so i call them to come and visit and say hello to him it's like no no let's call them because he may not last the night so at this point, they don't really know what's going on with me. What is happening that they're not aware of yet is that my kidneys had failed. Um, and also um, my blood was going septic basically because I had contracted meningitis. Um, as, as kind of that process to find out what was wrong with me was found out, um, they never really found out exactly where I picked it up. Uh, it could have been almost anywhere, right? And so... You know, there's no uh, pinpoint of like, you know, I was patient zero for a bunch of things that happened because there was nobody else that came in at that time, which is incredibly fortunate, especially for someone like my wife, who I'm in close contact with or with the people I work with or the kids, right? So uh, as my kidneys are failed, uh, as my blood has gone septic, um, you know, your, your body starts to kind of protect your vital organs. Um, so you know, fast forward a bit, you know, my skin starts to blacken uh, on my extremities, like my legs, my arms. Um, then, and these are things, like I said, I've only seen pictures of, and like in my head, I've got a bunch of other things, but eventually it became um, one leg uh, below the knee. And then they were hoping they'd be able to save the second one, uh, but they couldn't save the second one. I believe before that even, um, my right thumb was amputated. Um, and before it got much worse, there was talk about uh, also amputating my right arm. Uh, I don't know if it was the entire arm because it's really probably it would have been just my forearm, um, but that didn't happen. So we just kind of stayed at where the thumb was uh, with limited mobility in my right hand. And so at that point, it's really about like, just trying to make sure I stay alive, you know, and, and kind of, they're not sure exactly what could happen to me and what, what the repercussions will be physically for me. So I think it was just a long time of trying to figure that out. There was so um, much um, like rotting on my skin uh, that I had to have skin grafts as well. So, you know, when you mount up this like laundry list of of operations that I'm going through. There was just no way for me to get up. And then once they took all the skin off my back, basically from like shoulders to basically um, belt, like my belt line, that's the skin that they had used um, to graft all across my forearms um, and my stumps. And that pretty much that's it. Like there is a, a, like some debridement as well. Uh, off certain parts of my body my my right hip probably is where the most happened and yeah that's that's after that was all done that's about six weeks later that's when I started coming out of the intense amount of medication that I was on and started kind of like just start to realize what was happening to me so yeah that's the beginning part I guess
Yeah, no, I uh, I mentioned in the beginning how we have um, similar stories. So it's it's literally yeah. like listening to my own story. I yeah. rarely share that portion of my story because people, right. you know, often just talk about my amputations and stuff. But you were in a coma as well, or? Uh, well, I was in like a medically induced coma. I guess it would it be like just just due to like the the shock that my body was going under continually is is what they had to do. Um, so like for me, I mean, that's a whole separate story too of like what goes on in your head at those moments and times as I, as I feel like, like I didn't understand it, but it's so strange that there are things about that that are really vivid um, that like, whether it's your mind trying to like process what's going on or, or, or whether it's some of it being kind of because of the intensity of the medication that we were on, like, was I aware of what's going on but kind of like it's a delusional kind of dream almost you know so yeah I mean that's that's an you're right I mean it's like I think what I remember them telling my wife that she had said and she said it's kind of like almost like he's under like mental duress it's like torture you know um so he's having to process things like that but they have no idea what's going on in my mind right Right. No, and, I, and to your point about being put in an induced coma, I think it's so that our body, yeah. or at least our mind will relax so that our bodies can heal. Um, right. You and I even had the same um, scar yeah. on the neck for our... <laughs> we have our belly buttons on our neck. <laughs> that, you know, to be intubated. Yeah. Uh, they decided to actually, for me, to um, uh, just lacerate every day and removed the, the necrosis stuff every day. And what yeah. I was left with was bony tibia that's exposed, a bony arm that's exposed, like my bones were all exposed. Right. Um, and then went to a series of surgeries to repair all that with muscle grafts and skin grafts, similar to what you described. What was going through your mind and from what you can recall between those coma, I don't want to say comatose moments, but those moments and then to actual yeah. realization of how this is a reality now where you wake up because you woke up, if you will, air quotes, woke up with your limbs already amputated or you yes. had made the decision to? No, uh, none of it was my decision. And, and none of it, like, am I bitter about? I was, I was kind of like, you know, I think at that moment in time, if I could go back and be part of it, it's like, you have to do what you have to do to survive. I, I know, um, you know, for my family that, and my wife particularly, is incredibly traumatic like to have to sign off on that, right? So, um, and then there's other parts of me sometimes that I'm like, oh my God, thank God I wasn't awake. Like it would just, like it was already uh, mentally a strain as it is to like to have to face that. I know that's something that when I see other people have had to like, like really consider it to like be like, this is coming up. Now I have to anticipate it. Um, that's a whole nother mental level of, of trying to like get yourself into a place where you know what you're about to lose and to, to, to grapple with that and accept it. So I don't know. I mean, you know, some people might be like, no way. Like I'd, I'd rather know. And I'm like, I don't know. This, this is the only reality I know. So I try to, I try to at least understand from other people's points of view too. But when it comes to this idea of like the decision for it, yeah. What's going through my head, probably the biggest thing that was present of mind, for me that I remember is that I had really two, two really specific vivid, like kind of like visions, like I would almost say like extended dreams that I went through in one without getting into like way too much detail. Cause you're like, I don't need to know who these people are. They were like, it was like populated with people in my life. Um, one in particular who wasn't even like my best friend, but I was like, I don't know why that person was so specific in it. But the big thing was is that, because I was about to, you know, put on the show with the kids, like that's what my mind was really focusing on clearly because I kept trying to get to them to get to the show. And then I would kind of like see all these people who are kind of on the periphery of doing that. Um, but I could never get there. Right. So it just felt like the hard part was like, I was continually trying to get there, but like it was impossible. And then the other one, uh, that was pretty intense was the one where I was kind of like, I was constantly trying to find my wife. So, you know, this is why I kind of say, I'm like, I'm clearly trying to process things 
So as I go through this really long like journey of trying to like find my wife and seeing all these different people in my life, I kind of come to the realization, at least this is what I remember, is that I thought, okay, I think I'm dead, right? So there's this weird moment of like being present, but also your mind kind of understanding that you're like, I'm just dreaming this. So there became this moment where I was like, I think you just have to accept that. And then it got really bizarre where it was kind of like, once I made that like realization in my head that I kind of like it, it's almost like things kind of reversed. And then I started like seeing things through like that I had just like dreamt uh, through a different frame of thinking about like, well, that's all gone and just kind of having to accept it. So that was one really vivid one. And then I had other moments too, where like, I don't know how lucid I was. I remember, you know, being on an operating table, but not being able to speak or anything like that. And just uh, hearing voices and kind of seeing like the roof of an operating room. So, you know, <laughs> every subsequent operation after that, it's like every time I get down on the table, it's like, okay, you got to calm down, man. Cause like this, <laughs> this is real, real life, like flashback stuff that's happening. So uh, out of the multiple operations I've had to have since then, it's always like, I had to prime myself for that moment, uh, looking up at the, at the ceiling, right? Uh, I'm not afraid of ceilings in general, uh, just ceilings <laughs> in an operating room. And um, other things that I remember, like of being kind of lucid, uh, but on medication, there's like, I kind of remember being in a really dark room. This is in the ICU uh, that I was at for about two months at the U of A that uh, I remember being like in my bed and I couldn't move. And I just remember like feeling like I was trapped. Uh, I was, and I probably was strapped to the bed so I couldn't move, right? But, but I couldn't confirm that for sure. And I thought I was like yelling at people, but I don't, I don't think I could talk at that time. But it's hard for me to kind of remember what that time frame is. I remember, you know, a little bit of like people like being there and just being like so afraid of like I can't move they can't hear me they ignore me I was like lying in this bed just looking at this window that's like 10 feet away from me and people telling me like you have to calm down if you don't relax then you know you can't get better uh so I, like I said I don't know how much of that is real <laughs> and how much was kind of like half real and then I'm seeing in my head because even then you know, my family members told me I had conversations with them or said things that that I don't remember either. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's all those kind of moments like that where I remember little bits and it's spotty. Yeah. So I think I, I don't know. Like six weeks was probably how long before I really started to remember. They were like, you know what date it is? And I was like, I think so. And I'd be like March 15th because I was just guessing. They're like, no, it's April. I've been trying to like, I knew you were going to ask me that today. It's funny because I do follow you online and yet yeah. I haven't gotten into this much of your story and listening to you is actually listening to my own. So it's very yeah. mirror like because yeah. similar to you, I was told I was literally strapped to the bed because they said you kept moving. Yeah. And at one point you literally grabbed and pulled every single wire that was attached to you Yeah, of, yeah. of you trying to escape this bed yeah. um and we couldn't understand why you're I, I mean they knew that you know i was agitated and all that so he said we yeah. literally had to put belts all around you and strap you to the yeah. bed the mirror that i <laughs> when you talk about that stuff is yeah. it's, it's all coming back to me what what i was told as well and similar to you know waking up i remember just being asked do you know what day it is they're like hey todd do you know what day it is today do you know what time it is um they said well it's july whatever or it uh, august already or yeah. you know what i mean so it's it's uh it's weird and then throughout the day they'll do it too like they'll say okay it's nine o'clock now you know and then they'll come in again and they'll wake me up and they're like okay it's noon right because you don't have I don't know about you, but I didn't eat until maybe months, months, months and months and months later, right? I was on a feeding tube as well. And, and probably you, you had a similar because of the tracheotomy, right? Um, yeah. And just our muscles just can't be, you know, just you've forgotten how to do that. Um, yeah. Your body has forgotten how to do that stuff. So, but going back to your story about just 
thinking about the kids and doing your play and doing it at stage. I read somewhere that that was almost like two weeks before you actually went into hospital, correct? Yeah, yeah. So they really had to scramble. <laughs> like the funny thing is like I looked in my car after I got home six months later and I was like, oh, there's a bunch of costumes I had. <laughs> I'm like, this would have been really helpful for them. I mean, they really kind of pieced it together. So, you know, I mean, in some ways, I was like, that's, you know, like, that's what I would have hoped. Even if I would have, like, died, I I still hope they would have done it, even though it would have been like, oh, my God, this is so intense. I think it was probably intense already, but I, I don't know that they really know the knew the level of how close I was. Because probably, I know from what I was told, they had, like, a staff meeting a to kind of let everybody know like this is what he has and uh like if anybody's had specific contact with him shared drinks whatever anything like that because uh me contracting meningitis and and how uh you know easily it is to pick it up uh that they had to be aware of that kind of stuff too you know but i think they kind of kept a lid on it as well a little bit publicly just because you know, you don't want people to start freaking out either. Um, and probably that's something that AHS, Alberta Health Services, probably directed them on. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's such a strange thing how, you know, I don't have, a, like, I'm lucky that I have some of those memories. And I don't know why those things specifically stuck with me so much when there's probably so many other things. Um, but I, I think probably like yourself, you just feel, um, like you're almost preparing yourself mentally um, to kind of start to deal with what's going on. So I think that's, that's a, like, it's a really interesting part of being in a situation like, you know, ourselves and other people have been through that I haven't really looked at or researched or, you know, as you probably know, you're like, well, how many people can I really talk to about this? Like realistically, because like right. two months in ICU, like nine weeks is I think what I spent is like mind blowing, like marathon <laughs> because, because, you know, your family and friends probably can talk about how many other family they saw and those families leave after a certain point in time, because usually that person doesn't last, you know? Right. So it's, it's like, it's, it's kind of an intense level um, that, not a lot of other people can directly relate to but at the same time i don't always try to make it feel like you know i'm some kind of like pain unicorn where it's like no one can identify oh i can't talk about anything terrible with you i'm like ah, it's so minimal i'm like oh, yeah, well no <laughs> like you can't i can't minimize your own uh, personal problems and maximize mine right but people project that on you a lot because they always tell you I could never do that, which is a whole another conversation, right? Yeah, so, no, I, I, I agree. I get that yeah. often. Yeah, it's and you also don't want to be that person, too, where it's like people constantly feel because there's already uh, a barrier in some ways of perception about yourself. And I don't know how you feel about it, but like, I definitely get that where, you know, there's a certain amount of whether it's just immediate kind of curiosity or judgment not in a bad way but in like a kind of in a way of a frailty or weakness of you from people that don't know you at all and sometimes even from people that do know you right so I think that's another thing is just kind of you know the aftermath of, of getting healed and everything is trying to get back to as normal as you possibly can is also kind of uh, dealing with perception sometimes because for me, I, I know other amputees, but um, I don't know what it's like for yourself in your own community. You might be like better connected than somebody like me. The only time I'm really surrounded by people is when I go to the Glen Rose Hospital and kind of go through either therapy or I'm seeing my prosthetist and, you know, you kind of run into people, but I don't have anybody that I really, you know, uh, talk with a lot on a regular basis about this. So, you know, that's why I think probably, you know, what you're doing, uh, it's not only good on a personal level, but is also positive for those people out there that kind of feel like um, a bit of that experience is isolated. 
when yeah. did you return to teaching? Well, it took me about a year to get back to work. I mean, I don't like, I think at first uh, when I was going through this, probably like we're talking about the ICU time, they don't know if I'm ever going to be able to walk on prosthetics at that point. So, I mean, that was always my goal that I could not control necessarily of like, how well will I heal? So at that three month mark, when they finally like started to give me the go ahead that, you know, it's now fast forward to like uh, June. So March, April, May, I'm at the U of A and, uh, and then we're moving into the month of June. That's when they started to like, look at me and they're like, we think that he can move forward and go for me in the back of my head. I was like, there's no way I'm not going to walk again, you know, uh, without knowing what it would really take to get there. So yeah. And then the last three months was kind of like about, uh, recovery. And then, you know, then it was, I, I went home after six months and then it was six more months of two days uh, at the Glen Rose um, for a lot of different things. It, part of it was OT and part of it was uh, physical therapy. So I would do both of those things as I kind of like slowly but surely got back to like um, getting back to school after a year. And then right before I was going to go back, I think I, I remember I had one more operation and that was the one that I actually had on my, uh, uh, it was kind of like a plastic surgery for myself where they took a piece of my bottom lip and they put it in my top lip. So there wasn't, cause there was kind of like a scar that had developed from, um, just from the skin kind of rotting a bit and just, uh, having a tube uh, inside my mouth for so long. So, uh, once they did that, then I was like, okay, now I'm, I'm kind of good to go back. So that was about a year outside of, uh, of the initial incident going mm-hmm. into ICU. Yeah. And then um, did you go back to, to teaching full time, like every day, or was it more like a graduated? Yeah, return to... they wanted it to be graduated, but I have commitment issues where I try. I'm like, I'm like, I can't half step this, you know, like I still had appointments to keep, which was good. So I could keep those appointments. But at the same time, it uh, for me, it was kind of like I would tell my principal, I'm like, look, I'm just going to be here. And I'm like, you can worry about it. And I'm not saying you can't stop me, but I'm just saying this will be good for me. So as much as they're like half days, whatever I was, and they had somebody in the class with me. um, I still wanted to kind of jump back in, but even that is like, like a mental, like acrobat (laughs) routine, because you're trying to figure out like how, you know, you just started to figure out how life can kind of work normally again on a certain level. And now to kind of parlay that into whatever it is that you do, um, that's a whole other thing. Because right, so I was, you want it, you can't. Right. So that's what I was going to get uh, ask you is that so you're dealing with your own recovery and getting yeah. used to the new norm, like you said, and figuring yeah. out uh, for, figuring out every day, really, like everyday things, you know. Um, how do I get just today to, you know, to how do I get on the bus today or how do I drive today kind of thing. And then you now have this faces of kids looking at you and fresh new faces and probably you want to ask you a lot of questions while yeah. they're, look, they're, they're there. Like, how do you, how did you deal with that? Well, I mean, for me, it is one of those things of like, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid to talk about it. But you don't know, and it was like that first year after, then when I look at kind of like that second cycle of year two of when I really have to kind of approach it on a public level and just kind of explain to people who are new to me what just happened. And because for me, it was so fresh. It was so hard. So, you know, there'd be a couple of times where people would like book me in and, and they'd be like, hey, can you talk to our elementary class or can you talk to our high school about this? And, you know, it's a good thing to kind of tell your story. Um, And most of the times I could get through most of it. But even like when I'm I'm only kind of briefly telling it, it's it's hard because it takes you right back to all those moments. Right. So I don't know how about it, how it is for you. Like, I'm still trying to find out, like, what's that balance of where, like, um, I feel like I'm comfortable enough to kind of work through it 
um, that whoever I'm talking to that I feel okay about being vulnerable enough uh, to talk about it, that I can see those pictures or look at myself like in learning to walk again or to see myself in that bed where, you know, my skin is black, you know, and I'm, I'm hooked up to like ton of machines um, to kind of like see my wife talk about it, you know, all those things. Like, so every time I kind of relive those news clips, when I, when I introduce myself to a new class, um, sometimes I'm like, yeah, you got through this one. <laughs> and then even this year, I was like the first half of the day, I was like, cool, you did it. Everything's cool. Let's kind of move forward. And then, you know, I did it again in the afternoon. And then I was like, there was just something that kind of broke me, you know, like I looked up, which is always dangerous. Never look at your audience. You should know this. <laughs> and like you do that and then you start to see how people are really reacting. And so there was just something caught me in that moment of like, man, like this is not because I feel bad for them, but you just kind of get like wrapped up in that moment of intensity. So, you know, telling that story, I think it's important um, because it lets people know who you are and where you're coming from. And I think in some ways it kind of normalizes the fact that we can talk about it. And I think it also uh, allows people to kind of see in some ways where you're at now, as opposed to where you came from. Um, and, and by no means that, like I'm constantly trying to be like uh, perceive me as frail or perceive me as like somebody who like beat the odds. It's more just kind of, I use it as a talking point for my students in that we all go through something. You know, we all, we all have hurdles in our life. Mine are just like glaringly apparent when you walk past me on the street, but that doesn't minimize, you know, what you go through and it doesn't have to be as dramatic um, but it means that all these things kind of build up as to like who we are, uh, how we conduct ourselves and how we deal with, uh, you know, challenges in our lives. Now, I, I, again, seeing a lot of, of mirror messages there for myself, again, finding that balance. Cause one time I talked about my entire recovery from 2001, yeah. not just my amputation and a speaking engagement, Right. And I literally caught, I got choked up myself yeah. on stage as I was saying the words. And, if, and I've said it many times and I've told the story many times, yeah. but yet somehow to your point about looking at someone, I wasn't even looking at someone. I wasn't looking at the, 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 the screen behind me either, but it was just, yeah. you know, I, you get caught up in that emotion and, and the storytelling. So, so for you, like how you get through, because for me, like it was six months and then I was back at home. Right. Which I like, I don't, I don't know that there's any like playbook or any kind of like, you know, timeline that's regular for everybody. So I feel like maybe everybody's at a different, different pace. Right. And I was older than you were as well. Right. You know, like me at like 44, I think, because mm -hmm. you know, I'm 48 now, I'll be 49 next year. It'll be five years. So how did you, like, how do you deal with that two years worth of being hospitalized? You know, occasionally you get to like return home. How do you deal with that mentally? Because for me at six months, it was tough. You know, it's, it's funny because I go back to one of the things that you said about um, when you had those lucid dreams about just thinking about the kids and, and saying, right. um, oh, they could have used the, the costume in my car. <laughs> for me, when I came around was, or when I sort of remember anything was, and it's funny, I don't remember, my sister tells me this. She right. goes, it's funny when you woke up because you were intubated and I couldn't speak a word, but you had signaled to something and right. we tried to decipher what it was. And one of the first questions you asked or to tell me in, in her own words, in her own, I guess, transcription of what I tried to say was, can you call my agent to tell her I'm not going to make my audition? <laughs> and she was like, but I didn't have the heart to tell you this is months later. Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure your agent goes, That's I'm never calling him again. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> he dropped on an audition without notice. Yeah. Just disappeared from the face of the earth, not apologizing, not saying I missed the audition. Sorry. So she's like, it, it, I think we, we create those moving forwards in our head already. Yeah. 
come to think of it and just move on, right? So to your question about how did I deal with the two years, it's funny because I don't remember being bored in the hospital. I didn't, I didn't um, feel that I needed to go home. And I think that's when I was considered institutionalized. I remember this vividly. The first time I left the hospital to go to an appointment that's outside of the hospital, I threw up in the car. And as soon as we got back from the appointment, my dad goes, he threw up in the car. Uh, When I came back to hospital, I was almost white. And he said, because he's so used to just being in the hospital, that the moving car and everything else outside is too much and he's overwhelmed. And so to me, the hospital was norm. Leaving the hospital was, it wasn't so much dealing with the hospital, but it was dealing outside after the fact. Yeah, for me, I would, I would agree with you in that there is like as much as you can't wait to leave, um, you know. And like I said, for me, that was only six months, and and I was fortunate in that even within that six months, that got broken up in half, where it was almost fifty fifty in at the Glen Rose recovering, and then fifty percent of it being at the U of A hospital is like I'm just trying to get to Glen Rose to start to go through all my, you know, recovery therapy. Um, but yeah, you kind of felt almost a little bit afraid of like, what happens when you kind of take me out of this, you know, bubble in some ways. So, yeah. uh, you know, how am I going to be able to function? You know, now I don't just like walk down the hallway to get to therapy. You know, now I'm like, I gotta, I gotta walk down the block. I gotta hit the train. I got to figure out how I'm going to negotiate like everything outside of me. So, you know, much less when you put on top of that the first winter with these bad boys, I was like, oh my God, I'm so, it's like, I know I have to do this, but it scares the hell out of me. And in some ways, ignorance was bliss in that first, that first kind of time of doing it. So I agree with you. I think there is that kind of feeling of security that you know Mm -hmm. for a long time by being in a place like that and especially with the amount of time that you had so yeah and you're just you don't like you're already you kind of feel like you have a routine in some ways at that point right so you make connections with people in those institutions too like even if they're only kind of temporary for a bit and you cycle through different nurses or whatever it might be like you have those kind of like a regular routine and those people that are around you, even though they're not your family. Um, and I think that's something that's big. And I, I, you know, that's, that's something I'm always deeply appreciative of how, you know, incredible those people were, whether it was therapists or nurses. Uh, no, no slight against the doctors. Most of the time the doctors just like they're in and they're out. So, you know, occasionally you may meet one that actually, you know, you make some sort of connection with, but the majority of the time I felt like uh, they were like punching cards and just trying to move down the block. <laughs> Most of the time they were like, I got a long dance card. So, you know, you're number 52 out of 300 today. Right. So uh, yeah, I felt like that, that was a huge security blanket that you have to kind of negotiate. You rely on them to a certain extent. And even, you know what, like I found two, it was kind of like, I wasn't sure what that line was where I could start to rely on myself a bit too. And I think the people that are really good at it kind of show you when you need to start to kind of care for yourself or when you can be independent, because that's another weird thing is that you're, you get afraid of being independent. Like you're horribly jealous of everybody. Like I remember just because due to the nature of the injuries to my hands, like for me to go fast in a wheelchair was like, it was not happening. So I'd be seeing like somebody who else might be a bilateral ripping past me in the hallway. And I was like, what? why, why take the thumb? <laughs> like, why not take a pinky? <laughs> right. Like, the thumb was vitally important. And just the fact that it doesn't bend, I'm just like, I would always be jealous of that, you know? So I, I agree with you that it's like any kind of change uh, messes you up. You're just not sure when you can be independent um you know like I, I still struggle with that the trust issues now aren't necessarily about caretakers 
I find the trust issue now is like, you know, how much can I trust my, my connection with my processes, um, you know, my legs at different times? And when are times when I need to make sure that I kind of set myself up for success um, by being confident or strength? So I'm, I still struggle with that, um, depending on the situation, you know, new places or winter time, you know, I'm like always deeply paranoid of, of ice. Right. But I think so, though, what 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 the experience has given us is the ability to adapt yeah. to things. So and quickly, I think I always put my problem solving skills into play. And I said, I think what it taught me was to problem solve, uh, yeah. both professionally and personally. If I'm given a task at work to problem solve, I seem to always have like a workaround to things or figure something, you know, yeah. another way out of it or another way to 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 solve it. And I think that goes with us too, especially wearing prosthetics, is that able-bodied may not go, okay, well, I'm going to walk on that black ice. Whereas, well, I'm going to make a point of walking around that black ice or maybe I'll cross the street because I see a series of black ice where I'm not going to be able to walk on that. Right. So we, we were constantly, I think in my mind, adapting and troubleshooting into the smallest thing that people sometimes forget that. Yeah. They'll just walk on it and go, well, I'm going to risk the fall. Whereas us, we're like, "Mm, no, I'm going to cross the street here because it's not safe over there. Oh, yeah. Right. So. Yeah. I, well, and like, I don't know about you. Like, I feel like, I mean, I never had to do it on that kind of physical level all the time that I'm undoing now, but I feel like, you know, being, doing what I do and kind of working with the students and, you know, in theater, you're constantly trying to find like, what are all these different ways that we can kind of patchwork this together or make the best of what we got. You know, so, I mean, there's so many life lessons within that. So I feel like um, I'm fortunate and that I, th- I think that's already kind of part of my personality is that I'm willing to like find what those things are. So, you know, I'm with, I don't know about you, but like at this point, um, like next year will be like five years with both my legs. So I think you, did you have them both at first or was it that you had? The amputation came later on your second leg. Wasn't that right? I, so back in 2001, I have had, I've only had a bilateral partial foot amputation because those are the things right. they couldn't save exactly. And then right. 2017, I had my left below knee. And then right. 2019, two years, exactly to the date was my right below knee. Right. Okay. That's because I was like, because looking through what you had gone through, I was kind of like this is similar, but I'm like, there was, yeah. it was almost kind of like gradual steps throughout it. Whereas yeah. with me, I think they were just ripping the Band-Aid off, basically. Because right. it was like, they, they basically, it looked like I stepped into a fire. You know what I mean? It looked like mm-hmm. I drooled in a fire. But yeah, I mean, back to that idea of, you know, the constant evaluation. I feel like I'm doing that all the time. And it's not, like, it's not unbearable. It's just something that I'm aware of that n- no matter where I'm going, even if it's like down a hallway, uh, if I'm going somewhere new where it's like somebody's like, oh, go over here or somebody's house, like I'm just constantly always thinking I'm like prepared for it or just being aware of like what I got to do to get there or making sure that I'm like, um, I got to know where I'm going and be comfortable in this space. Uh, and if I'm not, then I make sure like I bring my cane, you know, because I'm like at least that in some ways, if I have to go up or downstairs for some reason, that that's more workable for me. So I think my biggest thing is the mental hurdles that I I have to go through sometimes in new spaces, whereas, you know, somewhere like home, you feel 100% comfortable at work, 100% comfortable. Uh, It's those new spaces that I feel like create the most intensity for me. Right. Now, you brought up theater in this last conversation. And actually, you and I have a six degree of separation, interestingly enough. So a couple of Years ago, back in 2018, I was approached by an author, Leanne uh, Falder, and uh, and uh, she wrote a play that required a double or a double amputee was a role was a character, yeah. and yeah. because of my scheduling at the time, I couldn't even have the opportunity to audition uh, for her. Interestingly enough, you also had a chat with her um, because she had approached you about playing that character. And yeah. she wrote down, she said, Christian helped me normalize the knowledge of carrying an amputation. 
what are your thoughts or maybe perhaps take us through that conversation <laughs> with her and your thoughts yeah. about roles in inclusion because that is kind of, kind of important to me and, and I'm sure to you about representation in the industry. Yeah, for me, I kind of look at it as like, you know, it's something I still want to do, but I, I really haven't had an opportunity to, you know, kind of flex those muscles in that way yet. Um, so that was an opportunity. The only thing that was really holding me back is I had to tell them, I said, look, the bottom line is, is like, I'm still on a transplant list and I can't tell you that I'm not going to get a phone call on a Tuesday and then I'm, I'm not coming back Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like, and I'm not, this is not a big enough thing that you need to have an understudy. So for me, I kind of looked at it as like, it would have been an amazing opportunity for myself to play someone other than me, you know, cause when I saw the show and, you know, I didn't get called for that surgery uh, for the kidney transplant until like February of the following year. So I was like, you know, part of me was kind of like watching it. I was like, this would have been, you know, a great experience to kind of like conquer something that I feel like is another one of those things that I've got to still go through and do. Um, but, but I appreciated the fact that she was willing to kind of talk about it because I think it is, it's a different thing when you're writing somebody else's story. Um, and I can't remember the name of the individual that it was based on. He was a soldier though. So he'd lost his legs in in uh, something in the military yeah paul so something me, yeah paul, I mean, yeah yeah such a different experience i mean all i could really talk about was the fact of like you know what what are the things that we go through right like what how do we genuinely feel about it or when i talk to other people like you know if you think about you know how comfortable we are talking about uh what's going on and who we feel comfortable with and how we feel about other people you know, trying to help us. And one of those moments too, sometimes we kind of fall into that trap of, of feeling vulnerable. Um, so I don't know. I mean, those are just the things that I kind of discussed with her. So it was, it was a project I wished I could have followed through with, but, but I haven't been able to. And then, um, you know, the hope was last summer I would do something, but I couldn't really because of COVID. So I'm like, okay, so, you know, maybe it's a this year thing. We'll see. Um, but I feel like we're starting to see more of it. You know, yourself in that, uh, that ad is like, it just to see somebody sitting there having pie or whatever it was next to the fire. <laughs> that's, that's like, that's a nice thing. Cause what we end up seeing a lot of is, you know, I'm an amazing athlete or I'm this dancer without legs. And I'm like, well, look there. Sometimes I, I have this thing of like, there are some people out there that are high profile that are so athletic that I feel like I'm the four-year-old at this point with my legs. And I see other people doing things where I'm like, either it's my own limitations or whatever that I'm kind of like, I'll never be able to reach that. So what I hope to have, you know, see, or that hopefully other people see is that um, it's just something that kind of gets a little bit more accepted. I can't remember. There is an actress in town here that did uh, a production of Peter Pan uh that was uh written by Mikaya uchi who lives here and it was kind of a role that was specifically written for her and she has a, a single leg amputation below the knee and she did she does a lot of incredible stunt work and it was an incredibly physical role and they wrote it as part of the character and didn't try to make it like anything you had to talk too much about and i thought that was like impressive for me and then i've seen other things too more often in theater than in film to be honest with you because i think they kind of find a way to, to deal with things in a much more emotional way is that i saw a show that dealt with um, multiple stories of people who were had to be taken care of and these are people who were paralyzed and like in watching something like that i thought wow like i'm not in that exact situation but there were so many moments that i could kind of um understand myself so i go see that show with my students and like you know throughout and i'm just like oh my god right it was the first time i'd gone to a show at the citadel theater in edmonton here where they specifically had almost like a half a row of seats taken out that were actually spaced for people who you know maybe needed uh seating with more spacing usually there was only like two seats in the entire theater that either have a wheelchair access and 
or they just don't understand why you might need the extra leg room because you know like it's just like sitting in an arena too like you want to watch a hockey game in a regular seat like forget about it <laughs> you know it's not i've i've had i've sat at concerts and had to pop my legs off you know for three oh, hours I'm like i can't sit with my knees bent like that so seeing that kind of representation of people who are just kind of going through it or that's just part of their character i think is amazing and you know it's cool to see the rock pop his leg off but uh you know skyscraper didn't necessarily resonate with me emotionally i don't know how you felt like when i just saw him sit down and like take his leg off at the front door i was like that was way more like emotional to me than you know seeing him climb a rope (laughs) or like block a door with his leg Right. So you made a comparison to theater that you thought you see more of that in theater. And and then you brought up the, the, the rock movie. And there's a couple of more amputee-based movies, if you will, right. that are played by able-bodied actors. So do you think Hollywood is even trying? Or do you think theater is ahead of, ahead of trying things like that? Casting a, an able-bodied uh, to play an amputee role, what are your thoughts on that? I, th- I think, you know, it's okay. Like, I think there are different things. Like, you know, people are always like, do I want a serial killer in a serial killer role? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> so that's like a, a really hyperbolic example of that. But at the same time, I'm like, I think if you can tap into the character, um, then I think that's okay for whoever the performer is. You know, you have to inform yourself on different people's experiences. But at the same time, you know, it can help. But I understand that when you deal with something like, let's talk about cinema, uh, you want to do something that's a much smaller film, you're going to be able to find that actor and you don't have to invest a lot of money in this production because it's not going to be so huge. But when you have a lot of money on the line, you you have to almost see the celebrity or, you know, somebody that they're pushing at that point. And that's why I think, you know, when you look at theater, um, you might be able to get away with it more just because it's not such a large scale and you can tell in some ways smaller stories. So I think they'll come. And I don't think it necessarily always has to come from somebody who is in that situation to tell that story. But inherently, if it's like a film like Courage with um, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, where he was, he had his legs uh, amputated because he was part of that bombing that happened during the Boston Marathon. Like that's one where, again, it's like the whole journey is about like, how do I deal with that mental trauma? And what's the domino effect on people in my lives? So, you know, maybe at some point there'll be that that just becomes something that's a little bit more normal, right? But I think if it comes from somewhere traumatic, it's always something you're going to have to deal with. So I don't know. I'm not against it. Um, But at the same time, I'm like, I don't want you to have to go into a casting agency only because they call you for a role of an amputee or they're like, we need diversity. How many, how many boxes does this person check? So um, in some ways I feel very fortunate because I feel like, you know, the path that I went down um, has been incredibly enriching, you know, emotionally, spiritually, all those levels. And, uh, and it's also a way now in some ways to kind of like, you know, give those young people kind of a connection to somebody maybe outside of, of what they would normally have contact with and to kind of help normalize it in that small way in that little role that I play um, just by being, you know, their teacher or a mentor or whatever, or the jerk that gives too much homework. Now you, you, you brought up the, the, the young kids and being a mentor. What well, message would you have school, for them? I will, I yeah. will preface high school. <laughs> okay. Not tiny people, but <laughs> Yeah, like I don't do Christmas shows where everyone's awkwardly singing and there's a kid in the corner who's lost. Yeah. Or who plays um, a tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you may be a tree in improv, but very rarely in the show. Um, no, I mean, for me, it's like, I don't know. I just try to be the best example I can. It's tough because I do constantly find myself using my experiences as a touchstone. So I'm going through a novel study right now with my English students, 10 2. And, you know, the story is about a character who feels marginalized because they're Aboriginal. 
And so a lot of things that they're going through, I try to kind of portray this as like, we don't need to directly experience what somebody goes through. You know, there's a universal truth in everything. So you don't have to be an amputee to, to understand things that I go through. You know, I don't have to be uh, going through what you went through culturally in order to kind of understand you directly. Like we can always try to, to find ways to, to understand each other if we're open to listening to that story and hearing what people have to say. So I think that's what I'm trying to always uh, reiterate to them is that, you know, you have to find that connection. You know, we do it with people um, that we feel like an, there's an easy connection with. And I think sometimes we have to do it with people that maybe it's a little bit harder for us to find that direct connection and, and find some understanding. Great. Now, so where can people find out more about you? Maybe perhaps tell us about your show. <laughs> Look, here's the thing. My show has zero to do with like anybody who listens to it or doesn't know me has no clue what I've gone through. So it's really just about independent cinema. Um, a lot of it is locally driven. So I have zero desire to be like, I need to be podcasting all over the place. So <laughs> if you want to find me, I mean, you can find me on CGSR. Um, if you're really into deep cut cinema, you know, like a lot of Edmonton lo show lo <laughs> local short films, or you're like, oh, what are they doing at the Calgary Underground Film Festival? I really deal in uh, uh, undervalued and maybe uh, under-realized uh, filmmakers. So, yeah, if you're deep cuts, then come check me out. If you want me to talk about Wonder Woman 84, uh, it's not going to happen. As for other stuff, like I would say that, you know, I'm not pushing anything at this point. Um, who knows what path this is going to take me down. I'm just happy to kind of like cement myself in my career at this point, but the hope is to evolve at some point uh, into maybe finding a really well-crafted way to tell my story. So whether that becomes a one-person show or whether that becomes uh, speaking engagements, um, I, I hope to do that. That's not where I'm at right now. I'm just trying to kind of get a little more settled at work and then kind of start to work on that because I think there's potential there. And then as for like just finding out about my story, you know, probably the best place to go to is as a continual kind of diary. It's just that zip support group on Facebook. If people here and they're kind of curious if they're, you know, like us and kind of went through uh, similar experiences, then maybe that's something that kind of gives you a little insight into, you know, what has happened to me over the last five years, um, and particularly the early days from my wife's perspective. Um, but other than that, it's really honestly, my social media input is a lot of just like, here's me doing crazy film stuff. You're, if you're looking for uh, inspirational quotes uh, and me kind of like sitting in the gym doing curls, um, you won't find a lot of that. <laughs> I'm more kind of ironic. You know, I'm the guy who will make the joke first before anybody else does, mostly just to uh, hide my own horrible insecurities and avoid talking about really serious things. Great. Well, thank you so much, Christian, for sharing your story and sharing your expertise and your platform to educate everybody. It's literally like talking to a twin and truly yeah. an example of, you know, although our stories are unique to ourselves, that we're truly not alone. And you can, again, like you said, you can listen to a show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Yeah. I want to thank you. If you're Christian having trouble sleeping, I just want to say it's a really good show. Maybe what time is it? Come on. <laughs> no, no. Just like put it on like my, my voice is very calming. And what I'm talking about, you won't care about. So it'll put you right to sleep. Yeah, that's I recommend it for that more than anything else. Okay, all right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that then. Narcolepsy-inducing oh, radio is what I call it. Oh, okay. Does it come on any of that, or you just you just kind of stream it online or, or look it up you, as a podcast? You can find me on SoundCloud. That's all the links are oh, there yeah, on Facebook. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's all there awesome. on Twitter. Don't worry. Yeah, I actually I listened to one on Twitter today. So. Yeah, did it did it put you to sleep? No, it, it didn't. I was, I was writing about you. I was writing about you the whole time. So. Oh, yeah. Look, dude, don't put me on while you're driving. You will end up like in a heap of junk from your car smashing the tree. No, it's all good. I want to thank Christian Zip for joining me today 
I will share all his links on my website at www.airsoftmania.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The Amphitheater Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The Amphitheater Show Podcast.